Hello. Today I'm joined by Michael Kumoff, the author of the paper, Banks Are Not the Intermediaries of Loanable Funds, Facts, Theory, and Evidence. First, can you describe the intermediation of loanable funds model? Uh, the intermediation of loanable funds model is, uh, in academic research and also in textbooks today, the dominant model of how the activity of banks is described uh, in a macroeconomic context. And the idea is basically uh, that banks accept or collect deposits from non-banks uh, and once they have, and they, this is called funds, that's why it's an intermediation of loanable funds, uh, then they have funds and then they take those funds and they lend them out to a borrower. So you could describe this whole mechanism as deposits create loans because unless the, somebody uh, deposits some deposit first and those so-called funds, uh, there cannot be any loans. Can you please demonstrate the accumulation of deposits in a baseline ILF model using a simple financial transaction? The bank gets something new when it gets a deposit, right? Some new funds go into the bank and the banks then lend them out. Now, in the real world, when a bank receives a deposit, this is something like a check. Let's talk about a check, but actually the same story applies for any deposit of financial instrument into a financial institution that is a bank. Non-banks are a little, non-bank financial institutions, incidentally, are a little bit different. But when a bank receives uh, a deposit of a check, this check only has value because the underlying deposit on which the check is written already exists. And it exists by definition in a closed economy, when you abstract from international dimension, it exists uh, in another financial institution, in another bank. So while this bank that gets the check gains a deposit, the other bank, by definition, loses it, and this banking system as a whole doesn't gain anything new. So when this bank, and the way this then actually works, when, let's say, I am bank A, I receive a deposit from you, um, because, you know, you have done this interview, somebody paid you for it, and, and then you, uh, you get the deposit, you, you pay it into my bank, bank A. Uh, what I get is I get your deposit, uh, and that's my liability to you, because once you deposit something to you, to me, uh, into me as a bank, I have a liability to at some point uh, give this back to you. So this is my liability. What's my asset? Because, you know, uh, for, a, for any kind of uh, bookkeeping transactions, any asset and liability needs to be matched, right? This is double entry bookkeeping. This is basic for any business transaction, right? So when the bank gets this new liability after you de uh, deposit this check, what's the asset? The asset is the bank's claim on the bank of the check writer to collect the funds. Somebody else who banks with bank B gave you this check, you then gave it to me, and when I get this check, I then have a claim on this bank B to collect the funds. All right? Now, in the first instance, this is an accounts receivable claim. I have an accounts receivable claim on the other institution. Let's look at the other institution, what happened there. What happened there is that its assets didn't change, its liability, the deposit went away, and it was replaced with an accounts, receivable, uh, accounts payable liability. Bank B has an accounts payable to bank A. Bank A has an accounts receivable from bank B. This then is settled by way of central bank reserves. Because that's when banks have imbalances between each other in the payments mechanism, um, like 
more checks went away from bank B than went away from bank A. Then um, this is settled by way of central bank reserves. This is reserves that are basically li uh, on the liability side of the central bank's balance sheet. That's something that banks use to settle transactions among each other. So what bank A ends up with is a new deposit on the liability side of its balance sheet and a new asset, which is additional central bank reserves. Central bank reserves are just something that it's going to sit on. Um, it is not something that the, uh, can be lent out. Right? These are not loanable funds because central bank reserves are exclusively traded between financial institutions. They're in the UK, there's somewhere around 200 uh, financial institutions, if I remember this correctly, the, the number moves all the time, that have uh, uh, accounts at the central bank and they cannot be lent to non-banks. So there are no loanable funds here. Basically, this is just a check has moved around funds from one financial institution to another without creating any additional funds for the financial sector as a whole. Whereas the loanable funds model describes a deposit of a check as the financial system as a whole gaining funds. So this just cannot be, right? Um, so what does, it actually, what does this actually describe? Well, the first hint you get, and this is, you have to go a little bit into economic theory, when you look at the models that describe loanable funds models, they all have budget constraints, right? So you're that person who has deposited a check and you have a budget constraint. And let's just say you, you represent the entire non-banking sector in, in the economy. And you have now deposited a check. What does the loanable funds model say? It says that the change in your deposits is equal to your income minus your spending. Where income is stuff that you earn by working, you know, physical. Uh, your spending is physical spending on consumption goods or whatever. Physical. These are both physical transactions. Income minus spending is physical saving. Uh, so th this is nothing, you know, banks are all about ledger entries, financial entries, uh, no physical saving almost. Work, uh, go through the banking system. But in the loanable funds model, it's all about physical savings going through the banking system. Um, and, and basically, um, what this means is that banks are modeled as warehouses. Warehouses of physical things, of resources. That you give me physical resources, and I as the bank then give those physical resources to something else. That's clearly not what banks do. Right? You didn't give me financial resources. You gave me a check on a financial balance that already existed in another bank. It's a completely different story. Um, and the, the issue is, the reason why this is really important is in economic models, um, the question often, when, when, we, when we think about the banking system, is we think about, among other things, how fast can the banking system change the quantity of its lending, the quantity of its deposit? You know, and if you look at the data, it can change really, really fast. You know, aggregate banking systems often change the size of their aggregate balance sheet from quarter to quarter by sometimes 5%. You know, this is huge. This is huge. Now, if you try to explain this, um, it, generally it's less, but sometimes it's 5%. So if you try to explain this by way of savings, then you would have to say, that people at certain times work so much more, consume so much less, that they're willing to deposit these additional funds in the banking system uh, as physical resources. This is complete nonsense. You will never get that because um, 
the, the rate at which I can change my work effort, the rate at which I can change my consumption is generally limited. And the way we say this in economics uh, is that my preferences have curvature, meaning I want to smooth my consumption, I want to smooth my labor effort. And that by definition means that my savings are also relatively smooth, certainly way too smooth to explain what's happening on banks' balance sheets, and that's something we show in the paper. We show what's happening to saving. It is not completely smooth, but it's really smooth relative uh, to what happens to bank balance sheets. Um, and so to explain what happens to banks' balance sheets, you need another theory. What are the asset trading ILF models and what are some of the issues associated with this model? I call it the asset trading ILF model because there's a class of models out there that tries to address part of the problem that I just mentioned. The, the problem, uh, let's restate it, is you know, how do we explain that banks' balance sheet can change so rapidly from quarter to quarter? Right? We can't explain it through saving. So what about securities? So what these, uh, what these uh, models then say is that, well, one way in which banks can quickly uh, change the size of their balance sheet, the size of their deposits, is by buying securities from, let's say, increase the size of their balance sheet, is by buying securities from non-banks and giving them deposits in return. This is something that banks do. This is not, this is not wrong, right? This is, this is definitely something that happens. So you have some securities to sell. Um, let's say you're very rich and you have a million worth of securities to sell and it, it, you want bank deposits instead for some reason because you need the liquidity or something. You come to me, uh, you sell me those, those million pounds worth of securities and I pay you by way of a new bank deposit. I create this bank deposit out of thin air. And that's true. That is how banks buy securities. right? Um, and so then the question is, if I have a model like that, can we thereby explain that bank balance sheets change so much so we don't need any other theory? Okay, but there are two problems with that. The first is, uh, in virtually every instance of that model that I've seen, is that the accumulation of savings, the physical accumulation of savings that we described previously to the prior to this, is still uh, the baseline mechanism. It is just augmented with this other mechanism. But as I've just explained, this as a baseline mechanism doesn't make any sense in the description of banks whatsoever because banks do 0% of that in their activity. They're not warehouses, right? Uh, and so therefore the baseline mechanism is wrong but the other part of the mechanism um, does exist in the real world. The question is then, how important is it? And what we show in the paper, we are comparing the, the, the change in the size of aggregate bank balance sheets in the United States, the Euro area, France, and Germany. You could use more data, it's just this was enough work. Uh, for those four regions, we looked at it and we, we, we showed that um, the, the purchases and sales of securities and also valuation effects on securities, which is another channel, um, relative to the aggregate change in the, in the size of bank balance sheet is minuscule. It explains a tiny fraction of what's actually happening. So we still don't have a theory that, that gets us there, that explains what actually happens uh, to bank balance sheets. How does the financing through money creation model differ? Well, this is trying to recognize uh, what banks actually do when they make a loan. So I, I started out by saying, you could describe the loanable funds model and the mediation of loanable funds model as deposits uh, uh, create loans or deposits come before loans. Actually, what it really only means is um, 
uh, loans are conditional upon deposit. Unless somebody makes a deposit, there cannot be a loan in that model. In reality, it's the other way around. Say loans come before deposits, it's a bit misleading, but actually deposits are conditional on loans is the best way to say it. There cannot be a deposit unless the bank makes a loan. Uh, ab abstracting for the moment from the other channel that we just discussed, there can also be a deposit if the bank buys a security. We already discussed that, right? But I said it's not very important, right? So the other channel is that um, the, uh, a deposit can be created if the bank makes a loan. So what actually happens? You know, and I was, I, when, when a bank makes a loan. So I was a bank manager for five years, years ago, many years ago, uh, late 80s, early 90s. I worked for Barclays Bank for five years. I made loans, right? So, and, I've, uh, and if you follow, as a, a lending manager, the entries that get made, uh, when a new loan is made, you can, uh, you can see exactly what I'm now going to describe to you. And in fact, there's a paper by Richard Werner, uh, an economist here in the UK, who has actually done this for an individual financial transaction, traced through the ledger entries of a bank what actually happens, and got a letter to confirm it from the bank's manager. This is what actually happens. Okay? So what happens? Uh, you come to the bank, you say, I have a business plan, I want a million pounds. Um, and I look at your business plan, maybe I visit your factory, I say, yeah, this is a, this is a solid business, um, solid person, um, um, and so I think if I lend money to this person, I will get my money back and, and that person will be able to pay the interest, so I'm making that loan. What happens? I go and I say, I'm making a loan to you, which is, and, and I, that's my asset, it's my claim on you, which is my uh, uh, um, claim to get from you in the future uh, the interest payments on the loan and also the repayment of the principal of the loan. That is my claim on you. But again, as double entry bookkeeping, um, you cannot describe any financial transaction without the other leg of the transaction in double entry bookkeeping. What's the other leg? Well, the other leg is uh, it's not even difficult to find because you are also involved in that as the customer. Uh, you don't just get the loan because you don't come to the bank and say, I want to be in debt. No, that's not it, right? I want, I want to be in debt so that I can do something with the liquidity that the bank thereby gives me. So what happens is that I create a loan for you, a million pounds, but I also create a new deposit for you. Maybe you already have deposits with me, and just in which case I just increase your deposits with me. Or it's a new deposit, right? Um, and so I create a new deposit for you of a million pounds that did not exist before I create these out of thin air. I do this uh, not just willy-nilly, right, because I, look at, I looked at your business plan, I might actually take collateral, I might get a mortgage over your business property or debenture over your moving, movable property or other property. Um, so it's not, it's, not just willing, it's not just out of thin air in that sense that I'm doing this completely irresponsibly. But I do not need anything prior to you walking into the bank in order to create this loan and this deposit. These are purely ledger entries. These entries have nothing to do with physical resources like in the loanable funds model. They have something to do with me creating the liquidity for you in my box so that you can then go and do something with that. And you want that, I mean, you, know, and you could ask, why, why would you want that? Well, because you ha this has a cost to you. The loan may cost you, let's say, 5% interest, and the deposit may pay zero or one or two, if you're lucky, percent interest, right? Um, this has a cost to you. Why are you nevertheless willing to do it? Because this liquidity 
is the economy's generally accepted medium of exchange, the means of payment. If you have a machine that you really need for your business and some person C uh, is across town and is willing to sell it to you, uh, he's not going to accept your IOU, right, saying that, like your debt, uh, uh, and, and say, you know, put this on a tab for you, so to speak. He's not going to be willing to do that. But he's willing to accept the bank deposits because bank deposit is our economy's dominant medium of exchange. And that's why you're willing to do it because you, you think that with this machine, you are going to make so many profits that the interest spread that you have to pay between your loan and your deposit is okay because you're making more with the machine. Right? That's why um, you're, you're willing to do it. Now, we have now described the accounting. The bank has created the asset and the bank has created the liability. Because this doesn't involve any physical resources, it can happen in an instant. Right? And um, the bank, the, if, if banks as a whole suddenly become a lot more positive about the state of the business, which might, a business world, which might be perfectly justified or it might not be, it, can, you know, it could be either. Let's say it's perfectly justified. Um, and then they can go out and then create these ledger entries overnight. In, in practice, not going to be overnight because they have to meet you first. They have to look at your business. It all takes time. But it doesn't take very much time. It doesn't take nearly as much time as physical saving, as in the loanable funds model. Okay? And that's why bank balance sheets can change a lot, lot faster in this model as they do in the real world. Because I explained to you, we are still, with the previous two theories, we were still short of a good explanation for why bank balance sheets change so much. Which, with this, it's no problem at all. Right? Um, so, and then we're back to the speed issue, right? We now have addressed the speed issue, the speed with which balance sheets can change. Can you describe the key differences between the ILF and the FMC models? If you try to describe how the economy is going to respond to some shock, like as we call it in economics, a shock, some sort of un, un, unexpected event, um, let's say bad news about the economic environment, something like that. Uh, how, how, how is the system going to respond to that? Well, or good news. Good news is a better one because then, then it's easier to, to talk about. So the good news is, um, let's say, uh, a country has discovered huge new natural resources. We need to exploit them. What are we going to do? We need our firms to buy the mining equipment. What's going to happen? It can happen very, very quickly with the sound uh, banking sector in a fi financing through money creation model. In the loanable funds model, the bank would have to attract deposits from depositors, physical deposits, first, in order to lend them out so that um, uh, agents can buy the machines. And uh, so the speed that you can explain uh, changes dramatically. Now, it go this is not the only thing, but this is the fundamental thing. Uh, it then goes on to, you know, there's a huge literature out there in economics these days, much of it from central banks and a lot of it also from academia, about what do we best do about banks in terms of public policy? How do we regulate them? Um, how, what's the effect of monetary policy on, on them, but also the effect of macroprudential policy, of regulating capital adequacy ratios, regulating liquidity ratios? And what's all that going to do? And what's it going to do if I uh, introduce it very fast or slowly, etc.? In order to assess that properly, you need to understand what are banks actually going to do in response to these policies. And 
they can do a lot more, a lot more quickly in the financing through money creation model than they can do in the loanable funds model. So your entire dynamics changes. What doesn't change is what we call the steady state, the, the point towards which in the very, very long run this system is going to uh, gravitate uh, in a resting, when there are no shocks, it's going to gravitate towards this. That's actually not different. Uh, but what's going to happen in response to shocks, the speed at which it's going to happen, it's going to be completely different. So my assessment of standard economic policies that we're discussing all over the world today is going to change. Then there's another thing. is uh, There are also lots of uh, discussions these days about monetary reform, about changing the way the banking system works more fundamentally, or the financial system works. So for example, the topic of central bank digital currencies is very much in debate, I, and I've contributed to that debate with some papers, where the central bank would issue its own currency that would, to some extent, compete with bank deposits as a medium of exchange. How would the economy respond to that? Or they even, as, as was discussed in, in Switzerland in the referendum that they had earlier this year, what if we tell the banks that they cannot create deposits out of uh, thin air the way they do today, they can only intermediate, it's very radical, but. It, it, it was debated in Switzerland where they can only intermediate deposits of money that have been created by the central bank first, which in, in some sense would bring back the loanable funds model uh, um, for real, because in that case the banks would really only be able to intermediate uh, uh, funds uh, that, 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 that have been entrusted to them, although in that case there wouldn't be physical funds, there would be public money funds, right? So if you think about those two, the less radical central bank digital currency and, and Chicago plan, as that, that is known, uh, um, uh, monetary reform, the way the economy would respond to that, and the reason why you might want to do that, they're completely different. right? If, if, if you look at the financing through money creation model, then you realize that banks have this ability to very quickly uh, respond to uh, the, the state of the economy, which can be a blessing, it often is a blessing, it can also be a curse. And so then the desirability or otherwise of these financial ref or monetary reform proposals appears in a totally different light. Is there any direction of causation involved? In the loanable funds model, uh, there cannot be loans unless there are physical savings. Mm -hmm. So it starts with, or it, is, it, it turns on, it, it's critically dependent on physical saving taking place. And those are, you know, and the, 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 the desire to physically save is determined by my desire to work and to consume and things like that. And as I mentioned before, there's plenty of evidence that people try to not be too erratic with that. The, in the uh, financing through money creation model, the direction of causation is that there cannot be any deposits unless the bank either purchases securities, but that's not very important in aggregate, or um, that it makes loans. Right? And the, the, my preferences that matter as a customer of the bank, my preferences that determine whether I do or do not want to do that, are not preferences over consumption or work. They are preferences over my asset and liability structure, over the stock of assets and liabilities that I have on my balance sheet. I have to decide at that point, do I want an additional asset of a million pound, additional liability of a million pound, because I can then spend the million pound in order to buy a machine. Right? Do I want that? That's nothing to do with saving an investment. It may also have nothing to do with buying a machine. It may just be a purely uh, financial reorganization of my portfolio, buying an existing house, etc., etc. It may not even have anything to do with saving an investment at the aggregate level in the economy at all. 
Right? It's just my preferences of what do I want my asset and liability structure to be, and then I go to the bank and have it create that asset and liability structure if it thinks the risk is okay. What are the modeling shortcuts that both employ, and why might these be unnecessary or perhaps avoided? Models always employ shortcuts, right? economic models, because we're trying to model an extreme... It's not like physics, right? We're trying to model a, a not a controlled lab environment, but an extremely complex reality of the, everything that's around us and the economic things that are going on. So we always have to take shortcuts. The question is whether the shortcuts miss something that's really, really essential. So the loanable funds model is in a way saying, look, we are trying to, um, to think about banks, and we think it's, or even though we know that banks are not physical warehouses that accept physical resources and then lend out physical resources, we think that's a, a good enough shortcut. Right? And we're just going to proceed with that. I think what we show in the paper, to my mind extremely convincingly, is that that's not an acceptable shortcut because it has major implications once you be become explicit about what the alternative is. Right? And the alternative is the financing through money creation model. What's the shortcut in there? You could still say that's a shortcut. We do capture that when banks make a loan, they also create a deposit. What we do not capture, at least in the paper with Zoltan Jakob that we're discussing here, is that banks are in some sense still intermediaries, but in a different sense from the loanable funds model. So basically you'd say, look, you get the deposit from me and the loan, but that's not all there is because you would not get that deposit unless you intended to do something with it. Right? You want to spend that deposit to somebody else. And then the bank is going to stand between that somebody else who now has the deposit and you who still has the loan. Right? Uh, and we have the shortcut that we don't model that because we're just saying it's all between you and me. You have the loan and the deposit and that never changes. In a sense, you stand in for everybody out there outside the banking system and we're saying we know that you is not just one person but lots of different agents that interact, but we can abstract from those interactions. But we, I've written a paper, also uh, a Bank of England working paper, with Xuan Wang from uh, University of Oxford, where we go one step further and we say, let's think about this and let's, let's model these additional steps. And it actually, everything still goes through. So the story there is this, right, let's say, um, uh, you are an entrepreneur, you come to me for a loan, a firm. You come to me for a loan. I give you that loan of a million pounds and that deposit of a million pounds. Then you say, look, I need this loan in order to pay my workers. Let's keep it really simple, right? I need, I need to pay my workers. I can't stop, start working unless I can pay my workers. Mm -hmm. So you pay, your, it must be a lot of workers because it's a million pounds, but you know, you're a big company, you pay your workers a million pounds and now you can start producing, right? Now your workers are the depositors. Now, the loanable funds logic would say, well, that means the workers are the savers, end of story, and I'm still right. But that's nonsense, right? Because what happens after that, the workers sit on their deposits, but they can't eat their deposit, right? Mm -hmm. And let's say the, what you produce is food, right? So the workers then go and say, look, I need to, take my, I need to eat. I need to go to this company's store mm -hmm. uh, and pay my income in order to get the food and to buy the products that I myself just produced. This is all highly abstract, but that's in reality, that's how the world uh, sort of works, except that there's a lot more than just that one firm and its workers involved. There's a lot involved. 
but this is abstracting it to the essentials. And so then the workers pay the money back to the firm. And the firm now has the deposit again, and it can repay the loan. And the next period, uh, the next quarter, in order to produce again, it has to do the same thing again. Mm -hmm. So it is still that um, the deposit is created as a medium of exchange between the worker and the firm, back and forth, first in order to pay the workers, then in order to pay for the product. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's still, uh, what the bank did, it did not intermediate any savings. It intermediated in the sense that it allowed the workers and the firms to have these transactions with each other. And that's what banks do do. That's, that's, so the shortcut that we have, therefore, in the model with, uh, with uh, Zoltan Jakob that we're discussing here can be addressed. It makes the model a little more complicated. You need to be very explicit about what, people, what transactions people do with each other. But I think it has the beauty that it explains that what money actually does, what banks create is money and money circulates. Money is not just something that is, is savings and once it has been made it sits there, but the money continuously circulates throughout the economy from between different people that pay each other all the time. And the fact that we have banks is what allows us to have these payments going forward because the importance of cash in our economy, as you know, is very, very small relative to bank deposits. Can you illustrate why this modeling difference has significant implications for an economy's expected response to shocks? The economy responds very, especially in the short run. If you look at impulse, we call this impulse responses, where we're tracking what happens, for example, to GDP in, in response to a shock over time. That's a timeline, and how much does it go up or down over time? Right? That's what we call impulse responses. And so the impulse responses for loans and deposits in the loanable funds model are always very, very gradual, right? Because somebody has to save, and saving is something that people like to smooth. Given that what banks create is the medium of exchange, if the medium of exchange only very, very gradually increases, then the amount of economic activity in the economy can also only increase comparatively gradually, because the medium of exchange underpins economic activity. In the financing model, this is very, very different because uh, the, the, the banks can create this medium of exchange overnight and the economy can immediately pick up speed. And so that means in the short run, there can be big jumps from one quarter to another or from one period to another in the amount of purchasing power that the banking system creates and thereby supporting much faster changes uh, in real economic activity. By the way, this leads on to something important, the whole distinction between income and purchasing power. Um, if you look at standard economic models, right, including loanable funds models, mm -hmm. they would write down a budget constraint where you say, uh, my expenditure is equal to my income plus the earnings on my, my assets minus uh, the, the, the interest on my liabilities. Right? That's uh, basically, I, basically, I'm constrained in how much I spend by my income. Keynes and many post-Keynesians that came after him and that are still around and form a strong school in the UK here today know perfectly well that this is incomplete. It's incomplete in the sense, well, think about yourself. All right, let, let, I tell the story for myself. Right, I make a certain amount of income every month. Let's say I have no savings today, I just have whatever I get in income. But I have a good job, right? I get this income, am I really limited to that income? Let's say my income is, let's say it's 2,000 pounds, right? 
this month. Um, am I really lim limited to spending only 2,000 pounds? No, I can go to the bank. I can say to the bank, look, uh, you know, I've got a great job. I can easily repay any, uh, uh, any loan up to 20,000 pounds. And I want to go on a great vacation. Right? And the bank looks at my uh, employment contract, or perhaps just at my income statements, my pay slips, mm -hmm. and says, yeah, I agree with you. Go on your vacation, I give you a loan of another 2,000 pounds, and you go to Tenerife, right? And off you go. I am not limited by the 2,000 pounds. I can easily increase it by the amount that the bank is willing to lend me. Mm -hmm. It is still true that ex post, after the fact, for the economy as a whole. The income, uh, the spending has to equal the income. Mm -hmm. But the story that starts with that rather than ends with that ignores the fact that when the bank creates an additional loan and additional spending power, and let's say I'm not going to uh, Tenerife, I'm going to Brighton. It's actually more, more interesting in this context. I'm going to Brighton and I'm spending money there on the hotel and I'm gambling and all sorts of nonsense, right? And um, I spend 2,000 pounds in Brighton. Somebody else is earning those 2,000 pounds in Brighton. And that somebody else who's earning the 2,000 pounds might, in turn, spend 300 pounds of that to pay somebody else for something else locally, right? To have a pint in the pub, more pints in the pub. Meaning that this increases income throughout the economy. Meaning the income is something that I end up with when I look at the economy in an accounting sense. Mm -hmm. But additional spending supported by additional bank loans can create additional income. Mm -hmm. And this distinction between income and purchasing power has a long history in economics that's, that's today mostly ignored. The post-Keynesians don't ignore it. Mm -hmm. People like Schumpeter didn't ignore it. He was made, made a big point of that. And it tells you just how important bank lending can be because it can mobilize or demobilize economic activity, right? And, uh, and so therefore, the whole uh, recognizing how fast banks can change their balance sheet and thereby create purchasing power has obvious real implications. Uh, what are the main conclusions of your paper? Well, the main conclusions, it's, it's at various levels. Right? Um, the first level, and that's why we, we call it facts theory and evidence. And there's a reason why we put it that way. You know, banks are not intermediaries of funds, facts, theory, and evidence. We spend something like 10 pages in the introduction mm -hmm. just going over the facts. You know, it's not, this is not a paper like you have so many papers in economics, graduate economics, where you'd say, okay, let's look at the data first mm -hmm. and then build a theory that explains the data because the data explains to us what the theory ought to contain. Okay? That's the wrong way around here because I don't need data to tell me how banks work. Right? Mm -hmm. every, cent I mean, uh, every central banker that, 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 that deals with the monetary system mm -hmm. knows how the banking system works in terms of the creation of deposits. And there is now an increasing number of central bank publications that explicitly states what we state in our paper that loans create deposits, or lo the deposits are conditional on loans in the sense that I explained at the beginning. Mm -hmm. there is, there, our own were the first publications in 2014 in the Bank of England Quarterly Bulletin. Mm -hmm. um, in the, the Bundesbank, 
published a monthly report in April 2017 where they say very much the same. Um, the Central Bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia published a report in 2018 where they also state pretty much the same thing and the list is growing. Right? We don't need the data to tell us how this works because it's actually a question of what does the accounting look like. And economists often look down their nose at accounting because it's, it's only some bookkeeping. But actually, you know, but economists are, uh, claim that they're very interested with technologies, etc. Well, accounting is the technology of banking. That's all that banks do. Intelligently, macroeconomically, usefully, but it's all about accounting. It's how do I create the assets and liabilities that help my customers to function in the real economy. It is not about a, a real physical technology, but accounting is the technology of banking. Accounting is really, really important. And so that's something, you can start with that. So that's why we start with facts. Facts explain how does this work, period. Nothing to argue, right? Um, and I, I have yet to find somebody who, who, can, who can take the argumentation that we present mm -hmm. uh, in, the, on the first, in the first 10 pages of our paper and refute me and say this is not true. It's just because it is true, okay? Secondly comes theory. We make a theoretical contribution because one of the reasons why the loanable funds model has been so dominant in the literature is that it's intuitively easy to build a model that expresses the mom and pop theory of banking, mm -hmm. that somebody comes to the bank, deposits something, and the bank takes it. In essence, it is actually rooted in economics that, you know, there was a, there's an economics that's called real business cycle economics, where people think about the economy purely in terms of real terms, in, in, in real terms, and abstract from the financial sector and monetary things altogether. This was very fruitful, a very useful agenda that started in the 80s, and that's still underlying the models that we use today, but it is not appropriate to think about monetary issues. And basically what people are doing with that mom and pop model is they're modeling banks as warehouses of goods because they still want to think even of financial institutions as real institutions, as in real business cycle. These, they want to keep modeling everything in terms of flows of goods. But when you start to think about finance and money, you need to think about flows of goods and flows of money and keep them separate to understand what's really going on. And that's what we're trying to do in this paper and also more so in the paper with Sean Bang from, from University of Oxford. So that's the theory. We're building a theoretical paper um, that can replace the loanable funds model. Okay? Now, uh, the beauty of that theoretical paper is that you know, we can take a loanable funds model and change only one little thing turn it into a financing model and get totally different implications. In the loanable funds model, uh, you have budget constraints of two agents that interact with the bank. The one who deposits and the one who borrows. One is the change in deposits is equal to income minus spending. The other one is minus the change in loans is equal to income minus spending. What we do is simply, in the simplest model this is possible, we consolidate those budget constraints into one and leave every single aspect of the rest of the economy, including numerical calibrations of all parameters, etc., identical. So 
we're offering something that's really easy to use for people who have been using loanable funds models. So that's also useful. So that was facts and theory. Finally, the evidence. Um, we found it necessary to look very carefully at the evidence because people uh, uh, made empirical arguments to say, first of all, they made this empirical argument, you still need to look at the data. They say, yes, we do need to look at the data as an afterthought, in a sense, but it is important because we need to understand how important is this mechanism, right? Is this actually something, it could be something that, yes, it's in the data, but it doesn't make very much difference. But as I explained to you, it's in the data, and it makes all the difference in terms of understanding bank balance sheet and the dynamics of bank balance sheet. And say the second point is that uh, this goes back to the so-called asset trading loanable funds model. Um, you know, there was a point that, yeah, you don't need your model because banks buy and sell securities, and, and that explains why their banking systems change so much. And part of what we did there in the, in the uh, evidence section is to look at, look at this and say, they do do this, but it's minuscule uh, relative to what happens overall. Yeah. And so that's it, facts, theory, and evidence.